Hello and welcome to the Comedian's Paradise. This is the podcast where we speak to scintillating, fabulous and intriguing people with a lot of depth and character that are going to inspire us to chase this comedy passion on our own terms. Now, today's guest is an absolute fish and chips, full English breakfast guy. His name is Lewis Dunn. He is an imp- he runs an improvised Doctor Who show with a troupe. He also runs a podcast. He is also a man. If you give him any topic, he will turn it into a. If you give him a topic of teeth, he will turn that into a golden piece of comedy. You'll know of it. He is a remarkable individual who I saw on the stand in Newcastle. You're going to absolutely love him. Please welcome Lewis Dunn. <laughs> Thank you very much. That was a lovely introduction. It's very made me feel very, very illustrious and, and ready to go. I think you've overhyped me. I think you've oversold my abilities, but I'll Sorry, try and live man. up to it. <laughs> well, it's better. It's better than someone. It's better introducing someone well than some of the bad ones I've seen. Like Kate, I had an occasion a while ago where someone just just started cussing me before they introduced the stage. <laughs> I should have now if someone did that, I'll probably walk out the gig or or just not not show up. But yeah, I don't know. It was it, that's that's the worst thing that's happened. But I'm pretty sure you've had that as well, like a horror story or someone introducing you. Oh gosh, I mean, I, this is the thing because I I do a my stand-up character Stanley Brooks, and so I always have this awkward interaction with any MC I talk to where I go, my name's Lewis Dunn, but can you introduce me as Stanley Brooks? And like. 90% of the time, this is this is completely fine because MCs are competent people who know what's going on. They go, oh yeah, character act, fine. Stanley Brooks, on you come. And then instead, sometimes we just get someone who's just like, well, this person, they've said I've got to introduce them as Stanley Brooks, but that's not their real name. And I'm like, great. The suspension of disbelief is absolutely going to pay off. We're all going to have a great session now while everyone in the audience goes, well, this isn't his real name. Like... It, they, 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 it's, it's like someone's thinking they're clever saying something, but they come across as a knob when they're drunk. Yes, sometimes, yeah. <laughs> they go up to a bar, they say a nice line to the person they like, and all they are there is <laughs> absolutely, yeah. And it was, it was an interesting moment. I mean, when I, when I met you at a gig, you, it was in the stand and it was like four or five of us. And it was, it was quite an interesting gig. I mean, I remember I got a free drink out of it. That's one of the big things I remember. <laughs> you did well to get a free drink. Well done. Oh, yeah. I think it's because I looked young and they probably thought, oh, I'm giving him a favor, giving him drink for the first time. Yeah. Yeah. He'll take that back to his dad. There we go. We'll get... <laughs> That's exactly it. <laughs> uh. I, yeah. I, I zoomed it to him. <laughs> <laughs> now, what, what it was in, when I saw you, it was very intriguing watching you act because, like, mm. you, um, yeah, it, it's, it's, it was quite sort of like you chatted a lot to the audience, but then you sort of led it into this way, or that way. And yes, yeah. It was quite interesting seeing you. And as we said before the podcast, whenever someone's not just a straight observational comic or like what you often see, like, hmm, what's this? (laughs) Well, well, the thing is, I I did start off trying to do, as it were, straight observational comedy. Um, And like, you know, in my my sort of student comedy years, absolutely was playing it as, as, you know, straightforward as any other comedian in terms of like, I'm trying to do, I used to have a routine about Bing and, you know, the sort of mundane things that every comic tries to find the comedy in. And what I found was, was that 
I was, I, as a, as a figure, I'm a very, for the, for your listeners who don't know who I am, I am a very tall, very white, blonde, Aryan looking man. And so <laughs> as a result, it, it is largely the point that when I get up on stage, I do two things to the audience. One of which is I look like the kind of person who was like basically not here to be your mate. I look, I look not exactly intimidating, but like a little bit gangly, a little bit weird. And ultimately, I'm not, I do not come across as the underdog. And most good observational comedians, when you watch them, they tend to come across as the underdog or your mate or on a level with you. And because I'm immediately very tall, <laughs> I immediately don't have that level of chumminess of the audience that a lot of other acts could have. So I thought, well, how, how do I like undermine this? How do I make it so that I don't, I don't come up on stage and look like the posh git who you don't like at the pub, who you don't want to get on with? And so I thought, well, I'll just lead into it. I'll just, I'll play a character on stage. I play this character, Stanley Brooks, who is supposed to be a motivational speaker, but is basically a parody of The Apprentice. And it's a parody of that sort of terrible mindset of um, someone who thinks he owns the room the second he walks into it. And I thought, well, rather than trying to dissuade the audience of that notion they already have of me, <laughs> I'll walk on stage and go, I own the room. Why are you here? And what was the difference when you decided to do that as opposed to your regular stand-up? Like what did you notice in terms of how you felt when you did it and like the audience responses? Well, it was great because if, if, <clears throat> if you make yourself the butt of the joke, you can easily, you, you can sort of, so there's like this idea with what I do now as Stanley, what you said, I talk a lot to the audience. And that's sort of come out of this idea of if I interact with the audience and they give me shit and I give them shit back, it kind of feels fair now. It kind of feels like because we're both doing it, I'm like, I, I very early on when I did the act, I came out and I was really aggressive. I was, I was absolutely up in people's faces and I basically would find someone in the room and bully them. And I will admit it did work. People did find it really funny, but I would come off stage and go, I don't feel good about this. <laughs> I don't feel good about finding someone in the room and picking on them that relentlessly. And so I had to wind it back and sort of be like, when I'm talking to audience members, when I'm trying to bounce off them, the goal is not to win, as it were. It's not to be the smartest. It's not to get the smartest line. It's not to put them down. It's not to make them feel uh, bad about it, particularly because I'm usually the one initiating. Like these aren't heckles. I'm looking people directly in the eye and asking them these questions. So when I do that, if they come back with a response and then I shoot them down or bully them for giving me a response, that's just really mean because <laughs> they literally didn't ask for it. So mm. I'm trying to, I'm trying to work with audience members in a lot of ways to let, to give them the joke, to let them be the ones who can land the joke back against me. So almost all the time, the way I rethought the act was if I'm going to do this interaction with audience members, the joke always has to be not always, I should say, actually, that's unfair. Most of the time, <laughs> The joke has to be on me. I have to be the butt of the joke because that's fair. That's funnier. And that means that like, it also spreads a confidence around the room. It makes people go, oh, oh, okay. If he talks to me, it's not going to be scary. It's not going to be like a comedian putting down a heckler. It's just part of how my routine works. Yeah, that's very zen, man. That's very Mr. Miyagi. <laughs> no, it, it, it's very good. It's, it's a bit like, and how, <clears throat> do you see that in a lot of other acts that they don't see, how important is it being aware of like your people perceive you and what your weaknesses are and how to 
make make use of that before you even go and tell your first joke. I think it's super important. I mean, the, the the thing is as well, it works in different roles in the night. So like in terms of interacting with the audience, the the guy, the the comedian who's going to interact with the audience most is the MC. And the MC has to be your friend, has to be your mate, has to come across and is basically the safe pair of hands between acts. If an act goes badly, it doesn't matter because the MC is going to come back, tidy everything up and get the next act on stage. So their banter with the audience tends to be quite, you know, free flowing and going with it. On the other hand, if I tried to MC a Stanley, who I mentioned is a can be a bit of a bully and also has this whole attitude of like the 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 point of the act is to get the audience to laugh at him. There's no there's no safety net there. Like if he's in charge of the night, the audience might figure out they can take over. Um, and so there's a there's a balancing act between like interacting with the audience and keeping the the power dynamic in certain levels. There are other acts who are fantastic comedians, like incredible joke writers and incredible like character acts who cannot who cannot interact with audiences at all. And I do not, I think that's completely fine because that's just how their act works. They just, they are completely dependent on their writing and their performance. And if audience members interrupt, it's almost like interrupting a theater show. You know, there's no, there's no point trying to interact with Shakespeare. There's no comeback line in Shakespeare. Let the person perform, let them do their act. Yeah. Just let them, yeah, uh, yeah. And how do, you, how do you think someone becomes aware of that? Because I, I see a lot of the times, I see sometimes with some comics, they try and be like their hero rather than actually go out and try and do their own thing. Yes, you learn from other people and you mm. meld it into your own thing, but you don't try and be somebody else. And what do you think is a thing that comics could do where they could find out, see, okay, I want to be um, Bill Burr or whatever, but I come across more like a ten-year-old boy, <laughs> and I want to play on that rather than trying to be that. And how can they? Because that—that I think that happens a lot, and that maybe is one of the hardest things to do in coming to be. Yeah, yeah. Sort of re realizing what your how you how you are perceived and how you can control or change that. I mean, yeah. I, one of the best pieces of uh, uh, comedy advice I ever saw was. Um, Oh gosh, what's his name? Conan O'Brien did a did a speech, and he basically explained that his comedy act was him doing an imitation of his favorite comedian, and ultimately his impression of that comedian wasn't very good. But by being not very good, he found all the things he was good at, and so it was his like as his impression of that comedian gets worse, he develops his own act more strongly. So as you said, someone who's like wants to be like Bill Burr but does not come across on that sort of like slightly aggressive, but still your mate level is like, doesn't, doesn't have that authority. What they will find is that if they try and do the Bill Burr act, they will find things that are funny that are not the same way they're funny for Bill Burr. They'll be funny a different way. So what it could be is that it's really funny that this guy who does not come across as cool or, or intimidating thinks he is. And that joke is really funny. That joke can really pay off in the long term. But it's 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 recognizing what you have and what you can do with it. It's sort of it's almost like typecasting yourself, but then recognizing that once once you know what your weaknesses are, I could go against it. I could one day go back to trying to be an observational comic, but I know that the first thing I have to do is get on that stage and reassure the audience, don't worry, I'm not a prick. <laughs> because they've already made that assumption. Yeah, and people yeah. people do have that assumption. I'll be honest, if I'm at night and I see someone in a hoodie and they're running too too close towards me and they're carrying some sort of shiny object, I think, watch out. Yeah. 
this this is the thing. This if you come on stage and like with with a knife, assumptions will be made about what your act might be. I mean, it could be great. You could come up with a fantastic act about someone trying to mug the front row. That could be a hilarious act. But well, I do remember going to one Edinburgh show where a guy cut his top of his head as part of his act. Like really, like actually, like and just put a bandage like on blood. It. Yeah. That's not an act. That's a mental illness. That guy needs help. Whoa! <laughs> do not hurt your. Do not like go out of your way to physically hurt yourself in the pursuit of comedy. That's not healthy. Only mentally. This is not. Yeah, don't. don't. <laughs> Active self harm is not is not a good idea. And sorry, that's that's shifted the tone of it. <laughs> <laughs> no, but it's it's it, no, but it goes into what you were saying there, and it, it's a very difficult thing i think as well it's it's very what's it called like dying kruger effect you got to get the balance right it's good to have an ego and to think you're this and that but how do you balance it right without getting cynical and like oh you can't do this but also having a gleefulness of thinking you're god shit <laughs> <laughs> it's funny you mentioned dying kruger effect because that's effect that's effectively what stanley brooks the character are trying to do is like the epitome of he thinks he's the most confident <laughs> person in the room but he's an absolute fool and this thing that's that's i'm naturally quite an arrogant person so i just absorbed that i just went okay i come across as arrogant i will just be arrogant rather than trying to defy it lean into it see what happens mm. and do, do you so one of the thoughts I had when you did that improv, it works with crowds that are easygoing mm. and nice, but do, when you've, I mean, you've gigged quite a lot up north, or yes, do you still yeah. gig there now? Yeah, or yeah, no, I mostly, mostly gig up north, yeah. Do you get some of the working men's clubs right? <laughs> fucking what, mate? What the fuck are you asking me? So, <laughs> so what I will say is, I gig, around, I gig a lot around Newcastle, Yorkshire, that sort of <clears throat> northeast side of the country. And actually, no, most of the time these places are great. I, I will go into a pub and I'll, I'll have my, my heart in my stomach thinking that's what's going to happen. And actually, once, you, once you've told a few jokes and you've won them over, you can do that kind of interaction. And also, you know, they're kind of cheeky and kind of cheeky works with what I do because I want them to engage. It's mostly about them talking back. I'm not there to put them down. I'm there to like, you know, kind of get a bit of banter going and let them win a bit. But, but there is one place in the uk that did not engage with the act and did not like it and that unfortunately and i i hope to go back one day and rectify it but i did a gig in liverpool oh and um bless them so part of my act <laughs> part of my act back in the day was i used to get people the, the joke would be is I'd, I'd get get people into teams and i'd say come up with a brand new color um, which is which is a joke that came out of the fact that it's impossible to invent a new color. You can't do it. Every every color is merely a blend of other colors. There's only so much you can perceive. So the whole joke of this section was everyone would fail. So I'd go to the first person. I'd say, "What's your brand new color?" Um, and this guy just goes purple. And so I do the routine that I have in my head for someone says a color that already exists. I'm like, "That's ridiculous. The color already exists. This is terrible. This is a complete failure." And make fun of like this idea that they haven't done anything. Go to the second person. I go, "What's your brand new color?" And they go purple. And initially, I'm like, "Okay, this is funny because I'm now just going to have to basically like dig my heels in and be like, this is like, how how are we in this situation? How have you both not come up with a new color?" Go to the third person. What's the new color? Purple. This has lost all humor now because it's just clear that the audience is antagonizing me and refusing to play along. And so it's, it, it's sometimes like, you're right, I am dependent on an audience that wants to play along. But in a way, 
that's kind of all right by me because I've I've always thought of it like if I have a bad gig where the audience didn't play along, I'm kind of like, well, they ruined it for themselves because I had the, I had stuff to work with if they wanted to join in and have fun. But also there's kind of an element of, well, if you don't like what I'm doing, I don't have another I don't have another act to give you once I've started I you know we're, we're, we're doing this if you don't like what I'm doing fine but on the other hand you know it's like they've called a plumber and they needed an electrician like I've only I've only got my own tools I can't I can't use a spanner on your fuse box I've just got to you know this is what we're here to do so you can either try and enjoy it or if you want to be antagonistic fine but we'll just both have a miserable time Mm, that that is that is an interesting point as well. I had another guest on the podcast called Casey McNeil from Boston, and <clears throat> he said one of the things that made Margaret Chow a great comedian is that she has such a defined act. He did okay because he adjusted it, but she's a very unique product, very defined act. She mm. bombed terrible, but she he said that that's one of the things that separates an average comic from maybe someone who's a really world beater because they have a unique brand and that's what it is how much would you yeah. say you adjust to different rooms to try and get booked or to how much would you say you need to pander and how much is it like if you don't like me fuck off if you it, so i will say if you if you adjust your act to be popular you will never be any more popular than the current status quo so like if you if you go around now and do like watch you know loads of pub gigs in in sort of different places in the country and you watch a bunch of comedians and you see a load of comedians who are just really solid like really good club comics really funny great observations and you think yeah they're really funny they were great in about 2 months time you probably won't remember who they are because the fact is is that there's there's there are so many good solid club acts that can go into any room win over the room have a great time take the fee leave and just do that over and over around the country but they're just there's there's loads of them they're all doing a similar thing so if you if you see an act and think oh i'm gonna be like them you are just gonna be like them you're just gonna move into effect if you think of it in sort of a business terms you're moving into their market and now you're after the same market share you are just trying to basically also be them you might be a better version of them you might be a worse version of them but you are now carving into their pie if you want to like get beyond that you have to find something that's either very unique to you or you have to be the very best at whatever pie you're trying to carve into so what i'm doing with with my own act is look my own act is entirely a selfish thing i'm not doing it because i think it's going to make millions of pounds i'm doing it because i wanted to do stand-up comedy where i interact a lot with the audience where there's a lot of improv involved and this was what I thought was funny because for ages I was trying to do that observational comedian. I was trying to be that, you know, I, I had, I had like, my inspirations were people like, you know, Bill Bailey and um, kind, kind of Stuart Lee, but not really. Like I didn't like Stuart Lee's endless repetition. I just liked his snideness. Um, too. Yeah. And, and so that's, and I was like, I was trying to be, you know, Bill Bailey, Sean Lott, Stuart Lee combo. And all it really was, was I wasn't a very good version of those comedians. But from that, I learned the whole thing about being arrogant. And I went, okay, character comic, let's try this. And that worked out a lot better for me. Mm. Yeah. It's, and it's, it, it's a difficult question to ask though, isn't it? There are, there are, I mean, Marcel Lecomte's quite original and there's, a, there's quite a few unique acts that are doing well in those circuits too. Mm. But there are, as you said, um, yeah, you're saying that 
at the, if there's too many people trying to do then the market keeps getting shorter and shorter and shorter and then does does anyone sort of benefit as well in a way because then someone's like oh oh he's easy to replace well I just get bob from down the road well it's kind of it's more this idea of if you think about who the best observational comedians in the country are they are they are well and truly baked into the system of it now like michael mcintyre is hosting these shows he's got regular slots you know live at the apollo does have a good rotation of acts that sort of come up through the circuit and then also has a really solid bank of people they know they can rely on if you are going to move into the spaces that are already occupied you have to be better than the people you're replacing and by default you're not because they've got decades of experience and were also the best of their type when they came up through the circuit so at some point you have mm. to be realistic with yourself and say okay am i going to get as good or better than the person i'm trying to replace or do i have to find my own path that is a f- bloody great question that is a great <laughs> response no that you you've uh, yeah that's definitely the question and that's well, you got TikTok, you got podcast, and that's one of the great things about the pandemic. And like the Edinburgh Fringe is, when I yeah. go into it, it's it's amazing. It's so creative, so many like unique different acts and people oh, doing well, their own thing. The great thing about the Edinburgh Fringe is when I'm saying like, you know, you got what's your unique niche? The Edinburgh Fringe is like, here are six thousand unique niche acts that are all doing. <laughs> like, okay. It's like this is the thing. I, I'm saying this like, oh, it's so obvious. Just moving to markets that aren't occupied sometimes your market just isn't there sometimes your market's really limited sometimes you'll come up with like the perfect act for about 600 people and that's it (laughs) does it i mean one of the chat i had um do you know ada camp i don't know no so she's uh she does magic and she plays a posh lady and she's like has a psychic duck okay and um, a live duck a real duck no, no, fake like, oh, plastic duck. Oh, you got my hopes up magic now. tricks. Gonna go well, see the duck. It's still quite unique. It's still like, good. She, it's still good. Yeah, yeah. It, she, <laughs> but she, she's great. She, she, she's very unique though. Just have a look in the clip. It's something. Yeah, yeah. She's basically, um, yeah. She says that she gets to because she's different and very unique. She gets to do gigs with learning from comics. You get to learn from magicians and she gets to learn from the cavalry circuit because she's very unique. Yeah, no, that that's fantastic. I mean, the thing as well with the, like, I'm very envious of a magic act. I'm very envious of, um, I'm even envious of musical acts for the same reason, because it's an objective skill that you're demonstrating. <laughs> like you come out and you go like, you know, you can do a card trick and go, this is your card. And no, everyone has to agree. Like everyone's like, yeah, you did that. Well done. <laughs> or as a joke, you come out and you go, this is funny. And the room can go, no, it's not. And you're like, well, I guess it's not now. <laughs> yeah, it, it's a, f- <laughs> yeah, it's, and you can probably get away with a bit more. Maybe what you said there with a lot of comics being so brutal with musical acts is because they can't get, yeah, they, as you said, with a skill, but also yeah, because. Yeah. Some of the stuff that gets said about musical acts is pretty harsh, and they well just just when you hear what they say about improv. Oh fuck! <laughs> well, I think I will I will say they're definitely. Look, I'm not going to suggest that every single musical act is great. There are like you know every everything has a skill level and everything can be good on different levels. But with a musical act, like you you played the instrument, like you you did the thing, like the reason every single musical act song gets a round of applause at the end is because undeniably. If you played the instrument well and sung fairly well, yeah, that was that was enough to earn a round of applause, even before it had to be funny. 
<laughs> yeah, it's, it is, yeah, it's, and it was leading to another thing, because, as you say, I mean, definitely me and you, we do the, the comedy slightly a little bit different, mm. and I think there is definitely, as you said, the fantastic point of, if you are getting the market, you've got to be better than what's already there, mm. and even if you're different, they're quite restrict. sometimes people are, do you, do you get a bit of pushback from like certain people, certain acts, certain sort of gigs? Don't mention any names. But <laughs> there is challenges to it as well. I, I've never had any negative reaction from another comic to my face. I'm not saying that I, I don't know if anyone's done it behind my back. I just, you know, everyone's been lovely to me um, in terms of doing the act. I feel like it's, it, it can get a little bit, I've certainly had, situations whereby I've been watching like particularly MCs because I, I try to ask questions that are different to the MC when I do my act and I'll sometimes watch an MC ask like three of the questions I was planning to ask and I'll be like you fucker that was my plan um but I've never I've never had anyone rile against me because I'm a character act I do do uh this improv show as well any suggestions doctor which is an improvised Doctor Who show, um, which I'm very, very proud of. And it was, it was great to put together. Improv in the world of comedy is treated as such a second-class citizen and I'm furious and I 100% understand why, but I, it, gets, it gets a lot of, it gets a really bad reputation improv in the world of comedy. And it's quite like, even sometimes I'll just have stand-up comedians in like a green room somewhere slagging off improv comedy saying how much they hate it and how much they think it's terrible or cheap or easy and i'll just be sat there because they don't know i do this show and i'm quietly going mm-hmm mm-hmm yeah 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 <laughs> no yeah anyone could do improv yeah yeah why don't why don't you try and do it dickhead um, <laughs> you're saying so, that yeah. comics are racist <laughs> against <No>. improv <laughs> some of them are racist I think, I think there's a there's a this is the thing like like you know it's sort of there's a there's a sort of um virtuous circle of 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 like spite between different types of comedian like sketch comedians will have a go at stand-up stand-ups have a go at improv comedians improv comedians have a go at sketch comedians like there's this sort of endless cycle of comedians not liking each other's stuff behind each other's backs for the sake of ultimately it's because if you picked your discipline in comedy it's because you thought that was the best one and so ultimately like i you know i've i've, I've said this thing about the virtuous circle i do think all of these types of comedy of merit, all of them are brilliant in their own way and all of them have their own flaws in their own way. Um, I just think that possibly the reason that like stand-up comedy and improv don't get on is because like there's a, with stand-up, there's a preparedness that you kind of have to have. You have to go away, you have to write your act, you have to think it out. And it's the most intimidating form of comedy because it's not just that it's you're by yourself, it's also that you've come out on a stage and gone, hi everyone, I'm the funniest person in the room and I'm about to prove it. Like that's a terrifying and in a lot of ways, very stupid idea. Whereas improv largely gets away with, A, it's largely a team effort. It's very rare that you get improv comedy done by a single person. And it's always, improv always has the benefit of, because we just made this up, it's five times funnier than if you'd done it on a stand-up stage. Because there's an energy in the room of, everyone knows that you didn't have anything prepared, so that's funnier. It's funnier, any joke that you land is a miracle. Mm. Yeah, it's, 
you, you opened a few things that I'm quite interested in. So there's sure, there's, sure. there's two things that I'm going to mention there. Is Russell ha uh, Russell Hicks? Do you know of him? No, you mentioned Russell. Ha I know who Russell Howard is, but I don't know who Russell <laughs> Hicks is. It's there's a podcast with Russell Howard that he's done with the Diary of CEO, which is pretty good, which I'm going to mm. look into. But yeah, and that's a great podcast. Not as good as this one, though. <laughs> no. <laughs> yeah. Do keep listening. Yeah. <laughs> um, Russell Hicks is a known comic who would just improvise on stage. And how he started in comedy was he got a book on the uh, manual of stand up or something, and it was mm. an improv book. And he just looked at yes and, and he just kept on yes anding in order to do its whole set. And now he's famous for being a, he does have a few jokes now. That's fantastic. It, but he just yes ands the whole thing. That's a, that's a fantastic way of doing it. I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's sort of one of the golden rules of improv is yes and, is that idea of you, you accept every offer and you keep rolling with it. It's, it's been quite, this is the thing as well. I think with improv comedy, there are, so the yes and is now like a really known trope, particularly in the industry. Like yes anding is sort of used as a punchline, even within the world of improv, this idea of, you know, accept every offer and roll with it. What I think a lot of people don't necessarily know about improv comedy is that it's like it actually requires a brutal amount of rehearsal like it sounds it sounds like obviously that sounds contradictory that you're meant to like rehearse you're meant to go out and just you know let everything happen but it turns out you know this idea that if you yes and everything you'll get a great improv scene you absolutely won't <laughs> you will end up in complete chaos if you yes and every single suggestion that happens because sometimes you you have to push back against a character otherwise what you have is a world of like pliant morons who'll just let anything happen to them and I think a lot of people don't necessarily it's not that they don't recognize it's probably that they don't know that most of the improv comedy that you've seen is it particularly live is either going to be whose lines anyway which is short form improv and short whose lines anyway is great short form improv is great it's a lot of fun what it isn't is particularly like uh, sort of deep or well-structured. The whole point of short-form improv is to get to the jokes as quickly as possible and then throw away the scene and then do something else. And then the other thing they will likely have seen if they go to the Edinburgh Fringe is student improv, which is oh. people who who are new to it, who are learning, who are drilling. Like in the same way that if you go and see an open mic and you see somebody doing, you know, that one of the first 10 gigs, odds are they're going to bomb because it's one of their first 10 gigs with improv comedy if you're seeing a student improv troupe probably one of their first 10 gigs like it takes a lot of practice and rehearsal and like group chemistry and trust in each other and I think most improv that you see just isn't that well rehearsed or well trained either because it's that kind of short form where the whole point is it's a fun quick joke and let's get it over with or it's people who just haven't been doing it very long. There isn't really a big mainstream improv troupe that is selling long form outside of possibly the showstoppers and ostentatious. And I'd even argue with ostentatious, at least, that they're both not very well known outside of like BBC Radio 4 circles and live circles, but also those are some busy actors doing a lot of other things. So how, how, how is it that um, in like improv um yeah i mean i also see and I, I hear of a lot of improvisers coming from improv into stand-up because they say mm. that there's not as much opportunity or things for them that's why they get into it 
Well, yeah, basically what I, I, the improv troupe show that I do now, Any Suggestions Doctor, all of us have other projects going on at the same time in terms of I do stand-up comedy, uh, you know, other members of the troupe are writers, or do sketch comedy, also do stand-up as well. Uh, one, of the, one of them is an author. Um, so there's no, there's no way this troupe could exist as our main source of income, as our main comedy thing, because, I, I mean, I'll let you in on the biggest trade secret as to why nobody does improv, it's incredibly hard to wrangle large groups of people for shows that don't make a huge amount of money at the moment. <laughs> like, it's, just, it's just financially so difficult to convince people to do it. And then on top of that, you know, we've got a set, uh, we have a musician that we have to hire as well in order for the show to work. Like the, the cost entry level for stand-up comedy is really, really low compared to the cost and entry on stand on improv comedy and it's also the fact that it's like hooray we have a fantastic improv show can we put it on television or radio probably not because improv doesn't really work if it's pre-recorded and with so you do a lot of with both your improv troupe and with your act as a whole it's quite improvised but mm. yeah you mentioned there there's a lot of and in terms of the rehearsal is to get the right behavior or the timing right is that that is that the thing that really would you say in both of those things the main the hardest bits is getting the right responses and the timing right getting the right response i mean getting the right responses is a bit you you can't you can't decide what responses you're going to get it's more being a, it's more learning how to deal with a bad response it's more learning how to go okay that's happened and i've got to work with that so like with any suggestions doctor um, we always take the suggestion of where would you like to go in space and time? So we're open up to the audience and we get them to vote anywhere in the universe that you want to go, where do you want to go? And sometimes we get brilliant suggestions. One of the troops favorite suggestions was someone gave us the source minds of Heinz 57, a great suggestion, so much scope there, such a fun idea. We've got a great funny thing to build off with Heinz and like the 57 varieties. Brilliant. We've got so, so many places to go. And then sometimes we'll get a suggestion that's just like the moon, and we're like, oh, the big empty rock with nothing on it. Can't wait to go there. We've got to make something happen. Um, oh. So like that's, you, you, can't, you can't blame the audience for the suggestion because you are ultimately going to have to be the one to deal with it. And some are hard work and some are easy. And you just have to make that work and, and make that happen. With the thing, the thing that you have to train with improv is you basically have to really drill in this idea of you need to understand what is going to be exciting, make sense and be funny without having it written down. You have to have an innate sense of the concepts that go into uh. what makes... So in particular, in Sessions Doctor, we have to do a story throughout the whole show. The whole show is going to play out as a story. So we have to understand how stories are structured. We have to understand, you know, establishing a mystery, establishing a threat what's you know uh, at what point can we solve the problems at what points do we escalate the problems it's knowing about structure that doesn't mean that we've got backstage like a big list of like act one do this act two do this it's not like that it's more this idea of like you know if if, a, if an alien monster comes on in the third scene and then in the fourth scene you've killed them that was a terrible decision because you had you had a villain that you could play out throughout the rest of it that you could develop that you could make more interesting Whereas short form is almost the opposite of that. Short form is if something's funny, do it now. Even if it breaks the scene, even if it breaks the world, because you, you're, the scene's going to be gone in 30 seconds. You don't need to build and keep this world. Whereas in long form, if you're like someone comes out and goes, I'm an alien and you go, 
no, you're not. And the other person goes, oh, I'm not an alien. Great. I can't wait to watch the rest of this show where no one's an alien. Like, what, what a fun time this is going to be. Nothing's going to happen. And we're just going to have to sit here and wait for it to finish. Oh. And so because it's based on, it's more on how specific and they've got to give something creative. So if someone's mm. giving a moon, you're going to say, it's got to be a moon in like thousand moons where they have a social society and he's a moon with herpes or something. And <laughs> like, then yeah, we've got to, we've got to, if someone gives us moon, we're not just, we're not just going to go, well, we're on the moon and it's empty. We're going to go, we're on the moon and oh, look, there's a clanger and oh my God, there's a clanger civilization and it's going to destroy earth. Like, yeah, we've got to, we've got to add to it basically. And you know, there's tricks to that. One of the best things you can do. And this is a, this is a good insider secret. If you ever go and see an improv show, they will not just take one suggestion in terms of they'll say something like, uh, you know, they'll be like, uh, can I please get uh, an object you would find in the kitchen? And someone will go whisk and someone else will go spatula and someone else will go frying pan. And the, the fronter will like get loads of suggestions out of people. And then they might just go, okay, we're going to go whisk, even though it was the first thing that was said. And the reason for that is, is because I've just put a load of objects that are in the kitchen in the heads of the performers. So they're not going out and just going, I've got a whisk. I've got a whisk too. We've all got whisks. What else could we find? Someone goes, I've got a whisk. Someone else goes, put that whisk down. We've got to get this frying pan sorted out. Like you, you suddenly the troops prepped with lots of different ideas. And so that's like a trick is you kind of get the audience to feed you what they want without, while, while only taking one suggestion, while only making one promise. Oh, I got it. Yeah. So you get them going and then they, they... yeah, yeah. Oh, okay. That's that's an interesting bit, and <laughs> hmm. sorry, I'm very I'm very into my improv theory since I got into this show and in, into this. Um, it, it's been it's been an interesting thing doing it, particularly compared to stand up comedy, which I'm so used to being like. I know I know that when you see me, I talk to the audience a lot and I interact with them, but largely that interaction is a flow diagram in my head largely i know what to do if i get certain responses because i'm sort of pre like in the same way that you might do uh like a mentalist illusion where you're sort of like priming them to say something that you want them to say i'm sort of doing that except with a bit less control with a bit with a few more options that could come out hmm. yeah it's and this is you got me another thing that I'm thinking of. They say that improv and clowning are quite similar, but they're slightly different too. And with clowning, they say, oh, you just let it go everywhere. I'm not too sure if that's the case either, because I think to a extent, but I think if you want it to be a good show, there has to be some sort of control, but well, like a control with structures. To I've done... I've done a few clowning workshops. I would, I would, I, I'm trying, I would really love to do a proper clowning act. I really, really would. I, the thing that's stopping me from doing it is I'm quite scared by the idea of doing it because the clowning workshops that I went to, they're like, nah, nah, you've got to completely surrender control or it will not work. And sometimes they're like, you could go out there for like five, 10 minutes and get no laughs and you are not allowed to chicken out. You have to keep going or it does, or like you will not succeed. And I, I, it's, clowning is very appealing to me because it does have that loss of control element that I think would be really fun and I have I've seen um clowning acts that I thought were incredible that I thought were like delivered some of the funniest things I'd ever seen um but it is I mean I understand that once you once you get past the initial workshopping phase of clowning you do eventually narrow it down into a show where you have ideas that like more or less reliably work but to get to them you have to you have to do chaotic stuff that does not necessarily plan out as funny 
Yeah, it's definitely the case. It's yeah, it's it's there's there's a lot to it that you would that is a bit you wouldn't think there would be because there's a lot of different kind of clowns as well. And then mm. I think people often misunderstand. I mean, it's it's something that I want to do at some point because I I did went to Golia, but the the one modules that I actually wanted to go and do, mm. I'd end up not doing <laughs> because <laughs> I wanted to go for the whole thing. Yeah, and, yeah. Then I was skimped because of COVID, and then, yeah, the, well, I don't want to tempt fate, but I, I would love to do it soon. <laughs> I mean, this thing—the the clowning workshops I did were uh, someone at the local university ran them, and I went along. I would, I would be very interested in doing a, a Golia clowning act. I will, I will say, I think I'm also quite intimidated by it because I feel like part of that clowning school is like you have to have no boundaries, and I'm like, I actually do have quite a few boundaries. I'm actually, I'm more than happy to put up some boundaries right now because, uh, yeah, I'm not, I'm not, I've seen some, some Gaulier clowns and boy, can they not keep their clothes on. What was this? <laughs> Tell me. Oh, I want to go and watch. There, there are, there are <laughs> at least, there are at least two Gaulier clowns that I've seen. Um, Red Bastard and Doc Brown. Both have got Dr. Brown, I should say, not Doc Brown. That's a different, that's a different comedian who does keep his clothes on. It's very funny. Uh, Dr. Brown, who, who won um, the Edinburgh Comedy Award. Uh, oh god i can't remember what it was 2011 i think maybe um they're fantastic acts they are i, I mean dangerous oversells it in the sense that you're you're not really in any danger but what they are is they, they very much push the boundaries of what is like acceptable in polite society sometimes too far i've seen dr brown do things that i would say actually are not okay and i would not i would say are not suitable for on stage and i, I don't think he did it necessarily maliciously but i you know not not something he, he should ever really go after again but they are this is this is kind of the thing that they do and kind of part of their process is they are like we have no boundaries we will do literally anything that suits the clowning moment as it were mm. i'm not sure i could ever go that far i'm not sure i could ever do that yeah i've never done that i i, I mean I, yeah what's the maddest thing i've done on stage i i have I remember I when I with the clowning, I did one bit where I just took I just started saying, right, can I borrow your tie? And I said, Oh, can I borrow your shirt? Can I borrow no not the your jacket? Can I borrow mm. your hat? And I did one bit where I just, just did that for the whole thing. I mean it just went okay. clothes. Yeah, and then I get then then after that I started giving the clothes back to them. <laughs> <laughs> I did one clowning act idea once, which was I, I would I would come on stage. I did it was only it was at the stand actually. It was one of the few times I've tried to do it. I come on at the stand and I came on with a pack of top trumps. And I went to someone in the audience and I gave them half the pack of top trumps and like indicated to them, like like pick one of the pick one of the things. And then pick something on the top trump card. I look at mine and I go, <sighs> and I'd start unbuttoning my shirt. I take my shirt off and I'm wearing a t shirt underneath. And then I go, right, right, next one, pick the next one. And then pick the next one. I go, <sighs> I'd start taking my shoes off and just kept, would keep going until I was like just down to my t shirts and my boxes. And I'm like, come on, come on. <laughs> and then they'd, they'd say one. And I go, yes, I've won. And then I'd just stare at them, waiting for them to do their part of the bargain. <laughs> And what happened? <laughs> they would they would take off a nominal piece of clothing that wasn't embarrassing, and then I'd be like, "Okay, we're good, we're good." And then I'd end the top trumps routine. <laughs> it could be it could be good for the show that you mentioned. It's a fun idea. It's I would love to do the clowning stuff more, but I'm I am a bit intimidated by it. I I think it's it's a fun 
chaotic idea, but I, I will admit I get insecure on stage if I've not had a laugh within a certain amount of time. And that that kills me. If I'm if I'm on stage and it's been like three minutes without a laugh, I basically just don't want to be on stage anymore. And if you're a, if you're doing a proper clowning act, you have to be that fearless. You really do. You have you have to be completely fine with the idea that the only person you're amusing is yourself. Yeah. <laughs> it's mm, yeah, it's interesting. It, it, the school I haven't fully completed it yet, but it's it's mm. a mix and match. It's a bit um sometimes with the school, because of it's had big success, there's people go in there in the hope that will solve all their problems in mm. terms of being a great performer, or because there's been big names that have gone to it, they think oh because i'm going to go in there i'm going to achieve the same thing while yeah, they're not looking yeah. at it as saying what sort of thing am i going to learn or how is it going to improve me as a performer mm. it's, it's an interesting as well like there's so many comedians for whom i think clowning wouldn't wouldn't help them at all like look honestly if you're a really solid observational comic if you're like somebody who's really really good at delivering good jokes about you know the kitchen sink or or you know going to the shops or whatever clowning is not going to help you one bit the only thing that's going to help you is just, you know, solid writing and, and confident performance. Like if you're into the clowning, I mean, even, even by going into the clowning world, you're immediately throwing yourself into an alternative comedy niche. And, you know, it's something I was saying earlier. If, if the alternative comedy niche is full of Goulier clowns, maybe it doesn't need another one. Yeah, there is, there is a lot of, there's so many of them as well. There's so, mm -hmm. oh yeah, that's true. I think in Edinburgh, it's probably filled with them and it's, it's, and some are amazing some are brilliant i don't you know elf lions john luke roberts these people are incredibly funny and have amazing acts but again if you're going to the gaulier school going this will solve all of my clowning problems you're just yeah. moving into a different market where you've got to be the best again yeah she she's i've never seen her perform but i i had a chat with her a few times and she said to me that she didn't even do the gaulier clown clowning did thing. she not oh well, she that's learned fantastic. from someone else she did some couple of courses in it but she didn't do the clowning module I would love to do a clowning course of Elf Lions purely because I think she's an amazing performer and I'd, I'd love to I'd love to learn from her. I will admit the clowning stuff. I went in with a bit of like, hopefully this will improve my stand up. And I came out with, I don't think this will help improve my stand up. But this, is a, <laughs> this is a lot of fun. <laughs> now, before I go for that, what's been a piece of advice you've received in comedy that's been like, fuck off? <laughs> or like, what's the worst bit of comedy advice you've received? I mean, I think it goes back to what I was saying earlier, but I think the worst piece of comedy advice I got was, and it, and it doesn't apply to everyone, it's just, it's really just to me, but it was someone going, oh, talk about sex, talk about, people find sex really funny. And for me, that doesn't work. If I talk about sex, people just go, ugh, ugh, you shouldn't, oh no, don't tell us. And I don't know, I think again, it's that kind of thing of, I, I was talking to my wife about it and she was like, it's because a lot of your friends see you as like the dad figure. And I think people don't want to hear their dad talking about sex. And so I'm like, yeah i think that is it's not and again like as a piece of advice it's not it's not universal but if you if you want to if you want sort of the universal piece of advice don't go against your grain don't talk about things that don't work for you on stage talk about the thing that that is both funny to you but people like find you funny talking about hmm. it's and who's who's so you mentioned like one of the questions i put forward like mm talking about acts that you admire not only for being good but being very creative and unique and is elf lions one of them and like who are I others that you would see like my god they're they're proper the shit <laughs> no proper elf the, the shit the shit 
Elf Lines, Elf Lines, the, the Elf Lines show I saw was Swan, which is where she tries to explain the entirety of Swan Lake while dressed as a parrot, talking in franglaise the entire time. It's a hilarious and original show. It's fantastic. I mean, I was thinking about this because you, you, you asked me sort of beforehand to, to prep this question. I was trying to think of someone who who is not necessarily, because Elf Lines is sort of reasonably well-known, particularly in things like the Fringe Circles. Um, I think to my mind, Eddie Hurst uh, is a comedian springs to mind to me. He's a comedian who, who's sort of around these parts. Um, he's fantastic. He, he's sort of part musical act, part surrealist comedian. Um, one of my favorite routines he does is he comes out with a guitar and says, I know all of the Bond themes, every single Bond theme. Tell me any, any Bond theme you want. And he'll get a suggestion from the audience. And he has a unique Bond theme for every single Bond film, none of which even remotely resembles the actual theme tune. And all of them are hilarious. <laughs> He's a fantastic act. And the first time I ever, I ever saw him was at a student comedy festival. And he came out on stage and he was wearing a big T-shirt with a cat on it, just a big cat's face. And someone in the front of the audience was wearing a T-shirt with a big dog's face on it. And he came out and he went, uh-oh, I think our T-shirts are going to fall out. Don't worry, I think we'll be friends. And then he puts his hands up his t-shirt and makes the cat wink. And from that moment on, I was like, this guy's amazing. This is one of the funniest, like, it's sort of it's sort of part Harry Hill, sort of surrealness, but with such a cheeky fun edge rather than a threatening edge, which quite a lot of surreal comics are quite threatening, I think. <laughs> oh, I'm going to have a look into him and see what he's all about. That sounds good. It's fantastic, Eddie Hurst. I really recommend him, yeah. Hmm. And what's been like creative, but what's mm. been something that's sort of shocked you in terms of what you've seen on stage from someone what's... else and from and you? <laughs> well, oh, shocked! Something that I've seen that shocked me on stage. I mean, I mentioned I mentioned earlier Dr. Brown and, and Red Bastard both at some point get na fully naked on stage. Red Bastard then starts to sort of stretch and play with his penis, which I think what? Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's pretty. It's quite intense. I. <sighs> The problem, with it, the problem the problem i have with it is that it's it's oh it's wow it's big it's intense it doesn't really have any long-term comedic value <laughs> it's just kind of like i'm shocked and then the second you stop being shocked you're like it's just a man pulling his dick now like it's sort of lost i sort of it's interesting i don't know i think one of the one of the best stand-up shows i ever saw in terms of, and it's it was shocking in terms of I didn't expect it to go like this. It's a comedian called Tom Tuck. He did a show called Straight to DVD. The whole premise of the show, and it's sold on the fly like this. It's Tom Tuck has watched every single Straight to Disney DVD film, and he's going to tell you about it. And it's sold as this wacky, silly, observational adventure. And actually, he uses the show to basically talk about all of his previous relationships, why they failed, and is basically throughout the show you you come to realize that him watching all of these Disney DVDs was not a fun piece of like stand-up escapism writing. It's a man desperately trying not to confront his depression and loneliness. And it's a really, it's a brilliantly funny show. And it's also very moving and theatrical and poetic. And the reason it shocked me is because the ending of the show is actually really sad. And it doesn't end on a punchline. It doesn't end on a big ta-da. It ends on the like the saddest line of the show, and then a blackout, and then he comes back on at the end and goes, "That was depressing. Let's do a sing song <laughs> to try and raise your mood a bit for the." But like that, that to me really opened my eyes to this idea that you don't have to do stand-up comedy. That is, you know, you don't always have to end on a punchline. 
I'm not there yet. I'm still terrified of not ending on a punchline. I really hope one day I can get the self-confidence to go, actually, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna do something that I think is, you know, profound or 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 you know, sort of cathartic. Um, but hopefully not pretentious. <laughs> I watched um a podcast with uh, David Brailsford, you know, mm. the British cycling man, and he's he always and this is something I got from another comedian as well. He said when he's trying to improve his team or get them focus, you know, if you try and focus on being perfect, that's not going to happen. Mm. But what he does is he try and focus on just give me that one percent more. So he focuses yeah. on building marginal gains rather than like the the big thing at the end. Yeah, I I find it so. This is the thing. I've got so many. I've got so many great conclusions in my head. I've got so many great like ideas for moods i would like to leave the audience with no idea how to get there and i really hope like i'm doing my debut show this year and originally my plan for this debut show was i was going to try and try and do something like that i was going to try and have this big profound moment and as i've tried to write it i've gone actually the show i have right now doesn't work to that ending i've had this idea of this ending in my head that i want to do and it's not, it's, if I try and put it into the show, it will not feel natural. It will not have been earned. So I'm trying to now at the moment work through this idea of, well, what, what is the natural conclusion of the show? What is the natural ending? And I think I've got something that should work quite well. I think I've got something that's going to be still, still have a point to it, still have like a, a thing to it. So it's not just a collection of routines, although it is largely a collection of routines, um, but also leave the audience with like a thing to think about beyond that was funny. And that's what I'm hoping to get. But I, 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 that idea of like, oh, just the next, just the next one percent. I'm really bad at that. I'm so bad at like, God, I need to get to hundred percent, and I'm only on thirty six. How, how am I going to get to hundred percent? Yeah, I, I, me too. I think, but it's, it's, it's something that I learned. I sort of looked at recently. I thought, you know, it takes a lot of pressure off. That's one thing I noticed. Mm. I'm, it's something that I'm trying to do now. It, it takes a lot of the pressure of it having to be perfect, and yeah. then you enjoy it a bit more, and you're, you're happy that you're making little bits. But also, you don't want to get to the stage where you're not ambitious at all, though. <laughs> I think I think I tried. I certainly, I mean, it's been <clears throat> because of the pandemic. I've not been gigging at all, really. I think I, I've done about maybe two gigs this year so far, and um, yeah, and it was you know actually no three. I've done three, although one of them was me messing around and not doing it properly because I wanted to make fun of my friend who was hosting it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> instead of doing an act, I burst onto the stage pretending I was his landlord and demanding the rent. Um, uh, that was a lot of fun uh, but like I'm I always I always try and do at least one new joke I think whenever I've got an, if I've got a paid spot maybe not I'll do the solid stuff because they're paying me but if I've got an open spot I'm like okay try and do one new joke try and try and see if you can land one new joke and it, usually I can get a, a new joke in and then sort of put that in the back pocket and go okay that's a new joke that can go there if I want to do something different so you're what you mentioned there is quite an interesting point because I spoke Spoke to um, Dan. Do you know Tiernan Duyeb? No, I don't. This is the thing. I feel like we're in very different comedy circuits. Well, that's the thing. Like he yeah. he runs a comedy club. Well, he helps run a comedy club for kids, where they just. Produce... I know comedy club for kids. Yes, yeah. Ah, have you performed for them? No, I would love to perform to them. I can't look. I would absolutely love to to do audience interaction with kids. I think it would be absolutely hilarious. Not necessarily for them. I think I would have an amazing time. But he said to me, two of the funniest heckles. Let me 
I'm going to tell you them. Yeah. He says, um, one of them has said to a comedian, why is that your face? To Matt Kirshen. <laughs> and then another one said, um, if I was the ruler of the world, um, I would invade Finland. And he said, where does this come from? Why? He says, my brother's called Finn and I hate him. <laughs> <laughs> those, are, those like, that, that last one is a perfectly fantastically structured joke. That's like a great one-liner. <laughs> That's yeah, I, I yeah, I mean, there's my uh, this is the thing. There's a Twitter account um, my wife loves, absolutely adores, called um, uh, Kids Jokes, Bad Kids Jokes, I think it's called, and it's just amazing because it's all of the structure of a joke with absolutely none of the understanding as to what a joke is. Oh, it's absolutely fantastic. I can't I can't recommend the account enough because it's just it sets up some punchlines that just don't make sense, <laughs> and they're so stupid that they're funny. Yeah, it's fantastic. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's yeah. So you mentioned that with the UK, there's so many different circles, isn't there? Because you see in these comedy forums, you've got Manchester, you've got the northwest, northeast, you've got Card Wales, you've got Scotland, mm. you've got the south coasts, you've got London, and you've got the Midlands. Mm. Now. You said that you're based most, did you say Lee, Yorkshire and Newcastle? Yeah, I, I live in York, which as comedy scenes go is incredibly turbulent. It's like, I, I since I started in York, I don't think there's a single comedy club that when I started is still going. It's a constant rotation of different people taking over more or less the same venues and then slowly losing control over them, it dying there for a while and then somebody else having a go. Um, Hope, hopefully that's going to stabilise a bit. I've got a friend who runs a night um, in a pub called The Artful Dodger and that that can be a really good night and I really hope he can keep it going because that's been great. But yeah, I, I gig a lot, um, like my favourite gig in the whole country and it's partly because of my geography but also, I've you know, I've gigged in London, I've gigged in, gosh, have I gigged in Wales? I don't think I have gigged in Wales. I've gigged in Scotland as well. I've done a lot in Scotland up in the, the Edinburgh and Glasgow stands. But N Newcastle stand, Red Raw, I can't, I've never have a better time than there. It's always, the crowd are so generous. It's always packed. It's always a really fun time. You know, you, you can have a good time. You'll see loads of other brilliant acts and you have a good green room so you can chat to them and, you know, have a good drink. Like I, I've, oh God, my time in, my time gigging in, in the Northeast, it's a real feast and famine as well. Like the difference between the Northeast and London, as far as I can tell, because I do have quite a few friends who move to London to do comedy. And they can gig every single night. They'll get a gig anywhere at any time and they can just keep going and keep going. And, it, you know, it works really well for them. They get seen, they do well. It's really hard for them to get paid work. <laughs> By contrast, Northeast Yorkshire, Leeds area, I will not gig anywhere near as frequently as them. I'm lucky if I'm gigging four times a month, but I am way more likely to get paid work, even if it's just middle spots, purely because because those gigs are spaced out and in different places, you're so much more likely to find paid work because the pool of comedians is so much smaller compared to London. Mm. And does it, in some ways, is it, is you do need to gig a lot and get the practice, but I feel sometimes in a podcast when I've had a conversation with someone, I've learned since I started it, I've learned more in one conversation than some of the years I've done comedy. <laughs> Well, it's a good thing. It's a good thing to talk to other comedians. I mean, I did. I started doing comedy really when I went to university and the University of York Comedy Society. 
was basically a degree in comedy. They had stand-up workshops, writing workshops, improv workshops every single week. A show was done every single week, different types, you know, panel show, stand-up, improv, all of it. And you could just you could just dedicate all your time to doing it. And like we'd have stand-up workshops where the idea was you'd come in with your routines, you'd perform them to other stand-up comedians, and then we'd all just exchange notes. Sometimes that wasn't great. Sometimes you'd get notes like, I think you should do this for the joke instead. And you're like, well, that's not my joke, is it? That's your joke. And I don't want to do your joke. So we had to sort of train each other into being like, look, the way you give feedback with stand-up is more like, you know, get to this point, trim to this part. You need to be more confident in delivery of this. You know, that joke doesn't work in that place, but it could work if you did it here. Sort of more structural stuff rather than content stuff. Um, so I think talking to other stand-ups is, is vital if you want to train your own set. And, you, and really, we should do it more at gigs. We should, we should talk to each other. Not necessarily be like, here's how I'll improve your set. But maybe just talk about, oh, I used to do this and now I do this. And, you know. But what, what I was getting, yeah. But what I was getting at that, because you there's a smaller pool mm. and you travel a bit more, you get on those car journeys back, you get to have yeah. a chat with them. And also, because that's what Papa CJ used to say and used to give mm. you, you used to learn a lot more from the car journey back with more experienced comics. And maybe you build more of a closer relationship so you can chat. I mean, in London, it's it's so brutal, isn't it? It's like there's so <laughs> many people that are after the same sort of spots and they'll they'll do anything to get them. Like they, they're like hungry scavengers, hyenas over well, a small piece of meat. There's, there comes a point, and I don't know, I think, I think there's a certain point at which as a comedian, you have to start realizing that saying yes to every gig is not a good idea. Because ultimately, sometimes you will travel quite a long distance, pay a fair bit of money and perform to no one. And that's, you know, I know that the idea is you're supposed to, I'll get the practice and do every single gig. There comes a point where I think you have to recognize some things are genuinely not worth your time. Not in the sense that like you're better than it or anything like that, but because it costs you money, it costs you time, it costs your exhaustion. There will come a point where you'll turn up at a pub gig and there's no one there except the other comedians. And you have to tell yourself, this isn't worth doing. This isn't worth the stress of, of doing this. That's a, probably a bigger problem up here in the North where the gigs are more spaced out and it's you know harder to find stuff. But there definitely was a point where I was doing stand-up, in particular in there were some places in Leeds, where I'd keep going back and there'd still not be an audience. And I'd have to tell myself, look, why am I here? Why do I keep coming to this gig? And I think London will happily burn itself through loads and loads of gigs that people just don't go to. I've only done a couple of gigs uh, on sort of the open circuit in London, but I've been, I've been to one or two where there was nobody there. And I was like, why are we all here, guys? What are we doing? Yeah, it's it's. <laughs> mm. There's a lot of that in America. They they mm. but they're even worse. Like they will charge you money, five pound and a drink to do it. Yeah, I would never. I would never pay money to the actual. I mean, I've paid money to gig because I have to drive everywhere or get a train ticket. I would never, like, pay to put myself on a bill. I say that I have done the Edinburgh Fringe and I'm planning to do the Edinburgh Fringe, which basically is that. But at least there's the prospect that I could earn the money back. Mm. There is, I've heard, I've, I've heard there's only one comic that I know that has made a profit from it, but they do the charged venues and... Mm, free fringe stuff, yeah. You, I mean, I, I have, depending on how you, um, depending on how you count it, I've broken even and made profit on shows at the Edinburgh Fringe, but not to the standard of a cost of living. 
So I can I can make money on a show in the sense that I can make more money than the show costs to put on in terms of venue and like in you know insurance registration actual like show costs. But then you always lose money on uh, like just buying food, just existing in Edinburgh. You won't you won't make a profit. <laughs> like it's always it's always going to pay worse than the job you would have done if you'd stayed wherever you were and just did your job. <laughs> Yeah, it's it's crazy sometimes, isn't it? <laughs> yeah. Now, one of the things that I want to say now it's it's been a lot of fun. Thank it's been, and thanks for coming on. Thank you very much for having me. It's been a great time. I love I love talking comic theory. I love I love getting technical. Yeah, it's, it's fascinating to see it, to see what little things can change to improve it. Oh, I thought it was a big thing. Oh, I just shift this little rock here. Now it's not doing too bad. <laughs> exactly exactly now with um what 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 has been uh, what has comedy given you and what's it called what's the biggest lesson you no what has comedy given you what is the biggest lesson you've learned in comedy and how do people find about your work Com comedy's comedy's given me like a huge part of who I am in terms of my personality. I think about comedy all the time. I'm always thinking about jokes. I'm always trying to think of what the joke will be. It's given me friends and it's, it's ultimately, I met my wife through comedy. I met her at a comedy society and she still does the improv show with me, any sessions doctor. So comedy's, comedy's given me, you know, love ultimately. So that's, that's oh. fantastic. Um, what was the second one? What's the best comedy lesson was it? Or Yeah. What's the biggest lesson that comedy has given you? Um, you don't, oh God, the biggest lesson that comedy's given me, you don't, you don't have to let your flaws be flaws. You can let, you can turn your flaws into a strength just by embracing them and, and using them to like have fun and acknowledge your problems. I think, I think, yeah, comedy, comedy's taught me that I don't, I don't have to be the most likable person in the room. I can, I can actually use my character flaws as a way to be funny and that's better if people like someone who accepts their flaws more than tries to hide them mm. where you can find my work right here we go here's a list so <laughs> if you're enjoying the podcast format i do a podcast called the best video game you've never played where uh guests come on with a video game that i've never played i play it we sit down have a chat about whether or not it's the best video game that i've never played that's if you like video games it's kind of comics i do have comedians come on the show and talk about it uh, i had glenn moore come on the show he had a really interesting video game um so i'd recommend listening to that one if you can find it um if you want to see any sessions doctor the improvised doctor who parody uh, we have got four more dates coming up this year. Hopefully we're going to have more as well. And we're going to be going to the Edinburgh Fringe as the current plan, though I don't know where yet. Um, so uh, if you go to the site, anysuggestionsimprov.co.uk, you'll find a list of all of our tour dates there. I think we're going to Maidstone, Crawley, Birmingham and Norwich. Uh, and also uh, I'm doing my stand-up comedy act, Stanley Brooks, inspirational speaker. Uh, I'm going to be going to the Edinburgh Fringe this year, hopefully, with uh, my first solo show, Stanley Brooks, I Can Make Me Rich. Uh, it should be at a Laughing Horse free print venue. We're not sure where at the moment. It was going to be in Cabaret Voltaire. They might not exist anymore, so we'll find out as we get nearer to the Fringe. Um, but the easiest way to stay on top of everything I do is to follow me on Twitter, uh, at Dunace, D-U-N-N-A-C-E. 
I tweet everything I do. I always retweet myself. I always talk about what I'm up to. So that's probably the easiest way to find me if you like me there. That is everything I do right now. So, Right, guys. So if you want to know about Lewis, that's where it is. The links will be in the description. Um, guys, I hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, share it with your friends. Give us a review on Amazon or iTunes. And most importantly, if you've seen great value in this, subscribe on this tantalizing journey. And guys, I'll see you in the next episode.